Section 10 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. Irreverent use of holy places rebuked. Words of Christ long remembered. Christ's perfect knowledge of man's heart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this he went down to Capernaum, he, and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered, and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up then said the jews forty and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days but he spake of the temple of his body when therefore he was risen from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them and they believed the scripture and the word which jesus had said now when he was in jerusalem at the passover in the feast day many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did but jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man the second miracle which our lord is recorded to have wrought demands our attention in these verses like the first miracle in cana it is eminently typical and significant of things yet to come to attend a marriage feast and cleanse the temple from profanation were among the first acts of our lord's ministry at his first coming to purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be amongst his first acts when he comes again we see for one thing in this passage how much christ disapproves of all irreverent behavior in the house of god we are told that he drove out of the temple those whom he found selling oxen and sheep and doves within its walls that he poured out the changers' money and overthrew their tables, and that he said to them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. On no occasion in our Lord's earthly ministry do we find him acting so energetically and exhibiting such righteous indignation as on the occasion now before us. Nothing seems to have called from him such a marked display of holy wrath as the gross irreverence which the priests permitted in the temple notwithstanding all their boasted zeal for god's law twice it will be remembered he discovered the same profanation of his father's house going on within three years once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end twice we see him expressing his displeasure in the strongest terms the thing is doubled in order to impress a lesson more strongly on our minds the passage is one that ought to raise deep searchings of heart in many quarters are there none who profess and call themselves christians behaving every sunday just as badly as these jews 
are there none who secretly bring into the house of god their money their lands their houses their cattle and a whole train of worldly affairs are there none who bring their bodies only into the place of worship and allow their hearts to wander into the ends of the earth are there none who are almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation proverbs chapter five verse fourteen these are serious questions multitudes it may be feared could not give them a satisfactory answer christian churches and chapels no doubt are very unlike the jewish temple they are not built after a divine pattern they have no altars or holy places their furniture has no typical meaning but they are places where god's word is read and where christ is specially present the man who professes to worship in them should surely behave with reverence and respect the man who brings his worldly matters with him when he professes to worship is doing that which is evidently most offensive to christ the words which solomon wrote by the holy ghost are applicable to all times keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of god ecclesiastes chapter five verse one we see for another thing in this passage how men may remember words of religious truth long after they are spoken and may one day see a meaning in them which at first they did not see we are told that our lord said to the jews destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up st john informs us distinctly that he spake of the temple of his body that he referred to his own resurrection yet the meaning of the sentence was not understood by our lord's disciples at the time that it was spoken it was not till he was risen from the dead three years after the events here described that the full significance of the sentence flashed into their hearts for three years it was a dark and useless saying to them for three years it lay sleeping in their minds like a seed in a tomb and bore no fruit but at the end of that time the darkness passed away they saw the application of their master's words and as they saw it they were confirmed in their faith they remembered that he had said this and as they remembered they believed it is a comfortable and cheering thought that the same kind of thing that happened to the disciples is often going on at the present day the sermons that are preached to apparently heedless ears in churches are not all lost and thrown away the instruction that is given in schools and pastoral visits is not all wasted and forgotten the texts that are taught by parents to children are not all taught in vain there is often a resurrection of sermons and texts and instruction after an interval of many years the good seed sometimes springs up after he that sowed it has been long dead and gone let preachers go on preaching and teachers go on teaching and parents go on training up children in the way they should go let them sow the good seed of bible truth in faith and patience their labor is not in vain in the lord their words are remembered far more than they think and will yet spring up after many days first corinthians chapter fifteen verse fifty eight ecclesiastes chapter eleven verse one we see lastly in this passage how perfect is our lord jesus christ's knowledge of the human heart we are told that when our lord was at jerusalem the first time he did not commit himself to those who professed to believe him he knew that they were not to be depended on they were astonished at the miracles which they saw him work they were even intellectually convinced that he was the messiah whom they had long expected but they were not disciples indeed john chapter eight verse thirty one they were not converted and true believers their hearts were not right in the sight of god though their feelings were excited their inward man was not renewed whatever they might profess with their lips 
our lord knew that nearly all of them were stony ground hearers luke chapter eight verse thirteen as soon as tribulation or persecution arose because of the word their so-called faith would probably wither away and come to an end all this our lord saw clearly if others around him did not andrew and peter and john and philip and nathaniel perhaps wondered that their master did not receive these seeming believers with open arms but they could only judge things by the outward appearance their master could read hearts he knew what was in man the truth now before us is one which ought to make hypocrites and false professors tremble they may deceive men but they cannot deceive christ they may wear a cloak of religion and appear like whited sepulchres beautiful in the eyes of men but the eyes of christ see their inward rottenness and the judgment of christ will surely overtake them except they repent christ is already reading their hearts and as he reads he is displeased they are known in heaven if they are not known on earth and they will be known at length to their shame before assembled worlds if they die unchanged it is written i know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead revelation chapter three verse one but the truth before us has two sides like the pillar of cloud and the fire at the red sea exodus chapter fourteen verse twenty if it looks darkly on hypocrites it looks brightly on true believers if it threatens wrath to false professors it speaks peace to all who love the lord jesus christ in sincerity a real christian may be weak but he is true one thing at any rate the servant of christ can say when cast down by a sense of his own infirmity or pained by the slander of a lying world he can say lord i am a poor sinner but i am in earnest i am true thou knowest all things thou knowest that i love thee thou knowest all hearts and thou knowest that weak as my heart is it is a heart that cleaves to thee the false christian shrinks from the eye of an all-seeing saviour the true christian desires his lord's eye to be on him morning noon and night he has nothing to hide notes john chapter two verses twelve to twenty five verse twelve he went down to capernaum the strict accuracy of john's writing is noteworthy here cana was a village in the hill country capernaum was a town on the shore of the lake of galilee at a very much lower level than cana it is therefore said that jesus went down capernaum appears to have been our lord's principal residence in galilee during his earthly ministry leaving nazareth he dwelt in capernaum matthew chapter four verse thirteen at no place does he seem to have worked so many miracles and on no place does he denounce so severe a judgment for its impenitence and neglect of privileges thou capernaum which art exalted in heaven shalt be cast down to hell matthew chapter eleven verse twenty three it is a striking fact that though capernaum was a wealthy and important place in our lord's time it has so entirely passed away and been cast down that even its situation has never been clearly ascertained his mother here again we see no mention of joseph whether the virgin mary was a constant companion of our lord throughout his earthly ministry may be doubted we see her here we see her again at the crucifixion but we see her in another place standing without and desiring to speak with him when he was talking to the people and giving occasion to the solemn saying who is my mother matthew chapter twelve verse forty six 
indeed there is no proof that mary ever saw more clearly than the rest of our lord's disciples the whole purpose of christ's advent or was at all more prepared than the rest for his crucifixion and sufferings his brethren there is no good ground for supposing that these were our lord's brethren according to the flesh and that mary ever had any other son after our lord's miraculous birth for one thing it is well known to every careful reader that the word brethren is applied in the bible to many relatives besides those whom we call brethren abraham says to lot we are brethren genesis chapter thirteen verse eight though lot was his nephew michel and elzaphan were called the brethren of nadab and abihu though they were only cousins leviticus chapter ten verse four jacob said to his brethren gather stones genesis chapter thirty one verse forty six yet they were his sons and servants for another thing it is quite possible that joseph might have had children by a former marriage before he was espoused to the virgin mary and these children we can well understand would be called our lord's brethren in the last place we know that the apostle james was called our lord's brother galatians chapter one verse nineteen and yet we are distinctly told that he was the son of alphaeus or cleophas the husband of the virgin mary's sister it is therefore most probable that the word brethren in the verse before us means cousins some of whom believed on our lord though others did not john chapter seven verse five it is an interesting fact that at least two of our lord's apostles were his kinsmen according to the flesh viz james and jude the sons of alphaeus to them we may probably add simon on the strength of mark chapter six verse three and perhaps matthew also on the strength of mark chapter two verse fourteen and matthew chapter nine verse nine and his disciples this expression being used after the words his brethren may raise a doubt whether any of our lord's relatives as yet believed on him except the virgin mary it is possible that they only followed him now out of curiosity in consequence of the miracle he had just wrought verse thirteen the jews passover at hand this expression is another proof that st john wrote his gospel for gentile believers rather than for jews our lord's regular attendance on the feasts and ordinances of the law of moses deserves notice so long as the dispensation of the old testament lasted he gave it all due honor however unworthy the hands who administered it the unworthiness of ministers will not justify us in neglecting god's ordinances the exact number of passovers which our lord kept and consequently the exact length of his ministry from his baptism to his crucifixion are points on which there is much difference of opinion for myself i can see no better view than the old one that our lord's ministry lasted three years it evidently began shortly before a passover and ended with a passover but whether it included only three passovers and in that case lasted between two and three years or four passovers and in that case lasted between three and four years i think we have no materials for deciding positively if i must venture an opinion i think it most likely that our lord only kept three passovers but it is an open question and one happily not of deep moment three passovers are distinctly named by john viz the one before us the one in the sixth chapter john chapter six verse three and the one at which our lord was crucified if the feast mentioned in the fifth chapter john chapter five verse one was the passover our lord kept four passovers but this last point cannot be settled sir isaac newton thought that our lord kept no less than five passovers some few writers have maintained that he kept only two those who wish to see the subject discussed will find it in doddridge's notes on this place 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let it be noted that this journey and all the circumstances which attended this visit to Jerusalem are only related by St. John. For some wise reason the other three gospel writers were inspired to leave out this part of our Lord's history. Verse 14. Found in the temple those that sold, etc. The presence of oxen, sheep, doves, and money-changers within the temple courts is easily accounted for. The animals were intended to supply the wants of Jews who came to the Passover and other feasts from distant places and required sacrifices. For them the dealers in oxen, sheep, and doves were ready, within a few yards of the altar. The changes of money came naturally enough where buying and selling went on, to meet the convenience of the Jews who had nothing but foreign money which they wished to exchange for the current coin of Jerusalem. The tendency of the whole custom was evidently most profane. It was no doubt connived at by the priests from covetous motives. They were either connected with those who sold animals and changed money, and shared in their profits, or else they received a rent for the privilege of carrying on the business within the sacred walls. No doubt they would have pleaded that all was done with a good intention. Their end was to provide facilities for worshipping God, but good intentions cannot sanctify unscriptural actions. As Dyke says on the passage, no pretense of good ends can justify that which is forbidden by God. When we are told that our Lord found all this going on in the temple, we must, of course, understand that it means in the courtyards surrounding the temple, within the presence of the temple. But these courtyards, we must remember, were regarded as part of the temple, and therefore holy ground. I am inclined to see in this visit of our Lord to the temple, at his first appearance in Jerusalem after beginning his ministry, a partial, though very imperfect, fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. While the Jewish nation was expecting the appearance of a conquering Messiah with power and great glory, the true Messiah suddenly appeared in the temple, and declared his presence not by exhibiting temporal power, but by insisting on greater purity in the temple worship, as the first thing which the nation needed. That a fuller and more complete accomplishment of Malachi's words remains yet to come, I feel no doubt. But like many Old Testament prophecies about Messiah, the words were purposely intended to have a double fulfillment, a partial one at Messiah's first coming to suffer, a complete one at Messiah's second coming to reign. The great majority of the best commentators hold that our Lord cast out the buyers and sellers from the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. It is fair to say that Bishop Pierce and a few other writers think that it only happened once, at the end of his ministry, just before his crucifixion, but the arguments in favor of this view do not appear to me at all weighty or satisfactory. Verse 15. Made a scourge of small cords. The Greek word translated small cords means literally a cord made of rushes. Some have thought that these rushes were used as litter for the sheep and oxen, Others have thought that such small cords as these might very likely have been lying about after having been used for tying up the oxen. Whether the scourge was applied to those persons who brought the animals into the temple, as a sort of chastisement, as some old painters have represented the scene, we do not know. The more probable view seems to be that the scourge was simply meant to assist our Lord in speedily ejecting the sheep and oxen. The whole transaction is a remarkable one as exhibiting our Lord using more physical exertion and energetic bodily action than we see him using at any other period of his ministry. A word, a touch, or the reaching forth of a hand are the ordinary limits of his actions, 
here we see him doing no less than four things one making the scourge two driving out the animals three pouring out on the ground the changer's money four overthrowing the tables on no occasion do we find him showing such strong outward marks of indignation as at the sight of the profanation of the temple remembering that the whole transaction is a striking type of what christ will do to his visible church at his second coming we may get some idea of the deep meaning of that remarkable expression the wrath of the lamb revelation chapter six verse sixteen a remark of dyke on our lord's conduct in this place is worth noticing this act of christ is not to be drawn into imitation because he did it as lord of the temple by virtue of his sonship therefore the papists grossly abused this place that hence gather the power of the pope to punish offenders even with corporal punishments or to deprive princes of their kingdoms as for ministers the only whip they may use is their tongue in powerful preaching against abuses as for private persons god hath not tied their tongues though he hath their hands as occasion is offered they may show their detestation and dislike of corruption verse sixteen said sold doves take these things hence the distinction between our lord's mode of dealing with each of the objects of his displeasure deserves notice the oxen and the sheep he drove out there was no danger of their being lost by such treatment the money he threw to the ground it might soon be picked up and carried away the doves he simply ordered to be taken away had he done more they might have flown away and been completely lost to their owners it would have been well for the church if all church reformers had blended like wisdom with like zeal in their proceedings in the present instance all were rebuked and all instructed but no one was really injured and nothing lost my father's house this expression is noteworthy whether the jews observed it in the hurry and confusion of the whole transaction may be questioned it was evidently an assertion by our lord of his divine sonship and consequently of his right to vindicate the purity of his father's place of worship on another occasion when our lord called god his father the jews at once said he made himself equal with god john chapter five verse eighteen some have thought that the expression is parallel to that used in the description of christ among the doctors luke chapter two verse forty seven and that the words used there i must be about my father's business would have been better rendered i must be in my father's house the fact that the profane custom which our lord here reproved was resumed by the jews and that two or three years afterward our lord found the same thing going on again in the temple and again cast out the buyers and sellers ought not to be overlooked it is a striking proof of the desperate wickedness and fallen condition of the priests and rulers of the temple they were deaf to all counsel and reproof and given over to a reprobate mind the difference between our lord's language at the second visit and that he used at the first ought also to be noticed at the first visit he only says make not my father's house a house of merchandise a place of buying and selling at the second visit he says you have made it a den of thieves matthew chapter one verse thirteen the more wicked and hardened men are the louder must be our protests and the sharper our rebuke a house of merchandise musculus remarks on this expression that if the sale of animals for sacrifices called forth christ's displeasure much more must he be displeased at what goes on continually in roman catholic churches the sale of masses indulgences etc must be far more offensive to christ than the sale of oxen and sheep 
the complete success of our lord on this occasion and the absence of the slightest opposition on the part of the jews deserve notice it is a fact that induced some of the fathers to call this the greatest miracle christ ever worked there are however three things to be remembered in considering this matter for one thing the conscience of the jews was on our lord's side they knew that he was right and they were wrong for another thing as a nation familiar with the history of the old testament prophets they would not be surprised at an individual apparently under a divine impulse suddenly doing what our lord did above all there can be little doubt that a divine influence was brought to bear on all present as it was when our lord rode into jerusalem on an ass and when he caused his enemies in the garden to go backwards and fall to the ground matthew chapter twenty one verses nine and ten john chapter eighteen verse six here as on other occasions our lord showed his disciples that he had complete power over all wills and minds when he thought fit to exercise it and that when he was rejected and disobeyed by the jews it was not because he had no power to compel obedience they had no power against him except when he permitted the allegorical meanings assigned to the sheep oxen and doves by augustine origen and bede are too absurd to be quoted they may be seen in the catella of aquinas origen sees in the casting out of the animals a type of the dissolution of the jewish dispensation with its offerings and sacrifices biza sees a particular fitness in our lord's action of purifying the temple it became him who was to be our prophet priest and king to exhibit the same zeal for the purity of god's house that was formerly exhibited by such men as the prophet isaiah the priest jehoiada and the kings hezekiah and josiah second chronicles chapter twenty four verse sixteen verse seventeen his disciples remembered etc these words certainly appear to mean that our lord's disciples remembered the text which is here quoted at the very time when our lord was casting out the buyers and sellers it occurred to their minds as a striking illustration of the spirit which their divine master was exhibiting he was completely absorbed for the moment in zeal for the purity of god's house this is one among many proofs of the familiarity of the poor and unlearned jews with the old testament scriptures whether however the disciples regarded the psalm of which they remembered this verse as applicable to the messiah may be reasonably doubted the seal of thine house eat in me the sixty-ninth psalm from which this text is taken is quoted no less than seven times in the new testament as the utterance of messiah in the first twenty-one verses of the psalm the messiah's sufferings are related by himself the fifth verse is undoubtedly very remarkable as coming from messiah's lips when he speaks of my foolishness and my sins ainsworth says it means false imputation of sin thou knowest if there be any such as my foes charge me with bonar says much the same the text before us shows that it is sometimes justifiable to be entirely absorbed and eaten up so to speak by zeal for some object in which god's glory is concerned moses phineas and paul at athens are examples of such zeal exodus chapter thirty two verse nineteen numbers chapter twenty five verse eleven acts chapter seventeen verse sixteen augustine remarks on this text let the zeal of the house of god ever eat thee for example seest thou a brother running to the theatre stop him warn him be grieved for him if the zeal of god's house hath now eaten thee seest thou others running and wanting to drink themselves drunk stop whom thou canst hold whom thou canst frighten whom thou canst whom thou canst win in gentleness 
do not in any wise sit still and do nothing. Verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said, Doddridge remarks here that these Jews were probably the rulers, because the great assembly, or Sanhedrin, sat in the temple, and our Lord's actions would undoubtedly come to their knowledge without delay. This makes the question and answer which follow the more important. What sign showest thou, doest these things? This question of the Jews shows us that they admitted the lawfulness of a man doing such things as our Lord had done, if he could prove that he had a divine commission. He had suddenly taken upon himself a great and independent authority. Though neither a priest nor a Levite, he had virtually interfered with the management of the temple courts. Let him now show that he was a prophet, like Elijah or Amos, and they would concede he had a warrant for his conduct. Verse 19. Jesus answered, Destroy this temple. The meaning of this remarkable expression is either hypothetical or prophetical. It must either be rendered, Supposing you destroy this temple, or Ye will destroy this temple. If ye kill my body, or When ye shall kill my body. It is, of course, absurd to suppose that our Lord literally commanded the Jews to destroy him. The use of the imperative instead of the future must surely be familiar to every Bible reader. See especially the 109th Psalm. In the present case it is truly astonishing that anyone can see difficulty in our Lord's expression. He only used a mode of speaking which is in common use among ourselves. If a lawyer said to his client in a consultation, Take such a step and you will be ruined, we all know that he would not be commanding his client to take the step. He would only mean, if you do take such a step. A similar form of language may be seen in our Lord's words, Fill up the measure of your fathers, addressed to the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 28, verse 32. No one would say that our Lord commanded the Pharisees to do this. It is a prophecy. So also, Make the tree good, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, is not so much a command as a hypothesis. See also Isaiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. In three days I will raise it up. This is a prophecy of our Lord's resurrection, but it is a very remarkable one, from the fact that our Lord distinctly asserts his own power to raise himself up. It is like the expression, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it again. John chapter 10, verse 18. Both the expressions deserve particular notice, because many nowadays assert that our Lord's resurrection was owing to the operation of God the Father and of God the Holy Ghost, and that he did not rise by his own power. This is a dangerous heresy. That the Father and the Holy Ghost cooperated in the resurrection of our Lord's body, there can be no doubt. It is clearly taught in many places. But to say that our Lord did not raise his own body is to contradict the text before us, and the other which has already been quoted. Hurian, quoted by Ford, observes, the efficient cause of Christ's resurrection was the infinite power of God, which being common to all the persons in the Blessed Trinity, the resurrection is sometimes ascribed to the Father, sometimes to the Son, and sometimes to the Holy Ghost. Christ being raised by the Father and the Spirit is not inconsistent with Him raising Himself, for what things soever the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son. John chapter 5, verse 19. For being one in nature, they are also one in operation. The questions naturally arise in many minds, why did Jesus not work some miracle at once, as a sign to convince the Jews? Why did he not at once proclaim himself the Messiah? Why did he give the Jews so dark and mysterious a reply as the one before us? The answer to these questions is this. For one thing we must remark, 
it was a leading principle in our lord's dealings with men not to force conviction on them but to speak to them according to what he saw was the state of their hearts he answered fools according to their folly proverbs chapter twenty six verse five if he had given the jews a more direct reply he knew that it would have brought his ministry to an abrupt end and would have led to his being cut off before the time for another thing we must remember that however dark our lord's saying seemed when it was spoken it did in effect tell the jews of the greatest and most important sign which could be given them as a proof of his messiahship it told them of his future resurrection it was equivalent to saying you ask me for a sign and i will give you one i will rise again from the dead on the third day after my crucifixion if i do not so rise from the dead you need not believe that i am the messiah but if i do so rise you will be without excuse if you do not believe on me in effect our lord staked the truth of his mission on his resurrection he did the same when he said that he would give the jewish nation no sign but that of the prophet jonas matthew chapter twelve verse thirty nine when the apostles began to preach they continually referred the jews to christ's resurrection as the proof of his messiahship and why did they do so one main reason was because their master had told the jews the first time he appeared in the temple that the great sign they must look to was his own rising again from the dead verse twenty then said jews forty and six years etc this expression has given rise to some difference of opinion the temple to which the jews refer cannot of course be the temple built by solomon that temple was completely destroyed by nebuchadnezzar nor yet does it seem likely to have been the temple built by zerubbabel and his companions after the return from babylon there is no sufficiently clear proof that this temple was forty and six years building by far the most probable view is that the temple spoken of is the one repaired or rather rebuilt by herod and that the forty-six years here mentioned meant the time during which these repairs were going on and that the entire completion of them had not been effected up to our lord's time these repairs according to josephus had been going on exactly forty-six years when our lord visited the temple they were so extensive and costly that eighteen thousand workmen were employed about them and they amounted to a rebuilding moreover the minds of the jews would probably be full of them at this particular time because they were of recent date if not going on at that very time the greek words might fairly be rendered forty and six years has this temple been building they denote a time as whitby remarks not perfectly past if any one desires to see an instance of the extravagant lengths into which a good man may be led in following the allegorical system of interpreting scripture he will do well to read augustine's allegorical explanation of the forty and six years it is far too absurd to be worth inserting here wilt thou rear it up in three days this question implies three things a sneer astonishment and incredulity there is probably an emphasis meant to be laid on the word thou such a one as thou wilt thou do it that this saying of our lord nevertheless was not thrown away and forgotten but stuck in the minds of the jews though they did not understand it is strikingly proved by two facts one is that the false witnesses brought it forward though in a garbled form when our lord was arraigned before the high priests the other is that the jews taunted him with it when he hung on the cross matthew chapter twenty six verse sixty one chapter twenty seven verse forty verse twenty one but he spake temple body 
this verse is an instance of st john's habit of making explanatory comments in his gospel as he goes on in order to make things clear to his gentile readers let it be noted that as our lord calls his own body a temple so also the bodies of his believing people are called the temple of the holy ghost first corinthians chapter six verse nineteen if it was wrong to defile and profane the temple made of stone and wood how much more is it wrong to defile by sin the temple made of our bodies st paul and st peter both call our bodies our tabernacle second corinthians chapter five verse one second peter chapter one verse thirteen verse twenty two when risen dead disciples remembered this sentence is an interesting proof of two things for one thing it shows how much light was brought to the minds of the disciples by our lord's resurrection and how many hard sayings of his were at once unravelled and made plain for another thing it shows how long truth may lie dormant in men's minds without being understood or doing them any service it is one of the special offices of the holy ghost to bring things to remembrance john chapter fourteen verse twenty six we must not suppose religious teaching does no good because it is not understood immediately it may do good long after the teacher is dead they believed the scripture what scripture does this mean it cannot of course be our lord's saying what our lord said is specially added as something beside the scripture which the disciples believed nor yet does it seem likely that it means any particular text in the old testament about the resurrection i incline to the opinion that it means generally the whole testimony of scripture to our lord's claim to be received as the messiah when jesus rose from the dead the disciples were fully convinced that the scripture about messiah was fulfilled in their master the expression believed cannot mean that the disciples then believed for the first time as in other places it signifies that they believed fully and without any more doubt and hesitation the same may be said of john chapter fourteen verse one verse twenty three many believed these persons do not appear to have really believed with their heart but to have been only convinced in their understandings the distinction between intellectual belief and saving belief and between one degree of saving belief and another ought to be carefully noticed in scripture there is a faith which devils have and a faith which is the gift of god the persons mentioned in this verse had the former but not the latter so also we are told that simon magus believed acts chapter eight verse thirteen again there is a real heart belief which a man may have that admits of great increase this is the belief spoken of in the preceding verse when they saw the miracles this expression shows us that there were many miracles worked by our lord which are nowhere recorded in scripture st john himself tells us so twice over john chapter twenty verse thirty chapter twenty one verse twenty five nicodemus refers to these miracles in the beginning of the following chapter john chapter three verse two if it had been good for us to know anything about these miracles they would no doubt have been recorded but it is well to remember that there were such miracles in order that we might rightly understand the unbelief and hardness of the jews of jerusalem the miracles which are related as having been worked in or near jerusalem we must remember are by no means all that our lord worked there verse twenty four did not commit himself the greek word so rendered means literally did not trust himself it is the same verb that is generally rendered believe he knew all men this is a direct assertion of our lord's divine omniscience 
as god he knew all mankind and these seeming believers among others as god he knew that their hearts were like the stony ground in the parable and their faith only temporary melanchthon makes some very wise remarks on this verse as to the example which our lord sets us here of caution in dealing with strangers it is a melancholy fact which the experience of years always confirms that we must not trust implicitly to appearances of kindness or be ready to open our hearts to every one as a friend upon short acquaintance the man who does not hastily contract intimacies may be thought cold and distant by some but in the long run of life he will escape many sorrows it is a wise saying that a man ought to be friendly with all but intimate with few verse twenty five needed not testify of men these words mean that our lord had no need of any one's testimony about man he required no information from others about the real character of those who professed faith in him he knew what was in man this means that our lord as god possessed a perfect knowledge of man's inner nature and was a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart we should remember solomon's words in his prayer thou only knowest the hearts of all the children of men first kings chapter eight verse thirty nine the immense difference between our lord and all ministers of his gospel appears strikingly in this verse ministers are constantly deceived in their estimate of people christ never was and never could be when he allowed judas iscariot to be a disciple he was perfectly acquainted with his character wordsworth observes that the last two verses of this chapter afford an instance of the peculiar manner in which the holy spirit in st john's gospel pronounces judgment on things and persons compare chapter six verses sixty four and seventy one chapter seven verse thirty nine chapter eight verse twenty seven chapter twelve verses thirty three and thirty seven chapter thirteen verse eleven chapter twenty one verse seventeen in leaving the whole passage i cannot help remarking what a faithful picture of human nature it exhibits and how many are the ways in which human corruption and infirmity show themselves within the space of a few verses we find some openly profaning god's temple for the sake of gain some angrily demanding a sign of him which shows zeal for purity some professing a false faith and some few only believing but even these believing with a weak and unintelligent faith it is the state of things which exists everywhere and always end of section ten